0: What's up everybody? Welcome to the imagination. I am here today with Ryan Gatsby and I'm really excited for this interview because this is actually the first time I'm going to be hearing Ryan's full story tale. Somebody sent me a video on Instagram the other day called um, a letter to my abuser, tagged me in it and I watched it and it absolutely blew my mind and I went to Ryan's page I started investigating and realized that he's not only a survivor, but he's a male survivor, and one that's very open to talking about his story, which I think will really reach home for a lot of people that deal with these things on some level. Um, I think a lot of times with child abuse, child trafficking, people think about these really elite cases, and not enough focus goes on to what happens in your own homes, in your own neighborhoods. So Ryan, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to connect with you. you.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me.
0: Absolutely. So I want to get into what inspired your video, but I think giving context to your story will help a lot of people understand um, your mission and kind of the bigger picture of what you're doing with your story, which, by the way, I want to commend you. It takes such bravery to come on a platform like this or to put yourself out there. Most people, when they make these types of videos and they take all this content and put it together... It's normally a a really big accomplishment that somebody's super proud that they went through and that they received some type of an accolade at the end for it, whether it was money, whether they could buy a nice car at the end. Survivors, on the other hand, you know, people's first impression of you is some of the worst times in your life. And it takes so much courage to come out and talk about that. But it's so important that people are aware of the enormity of the pandemic that happens to children and that we need to put more energy into focusing into these different crimes so if you don't mind i'd love to just kind of start with your story and maybe talk about your childhood and um you know what what inspired the the big picture of where you're at right now
1: yeah of course yeah um so i enjoyed um child sexual abuse child physical abuse um up to the age of 16 um where and where i was in a near suicide sort of situation and um and was sort of saved in that situation and that's when everything came out but starting from the very beginning um we started attending a christian church um when i was around 7 years old and um in the uk i don't know if it's the same over there but if someone wants to get ma- if someone wants to get married they have to like go to church for so long. Um I don't know what it's for, but we was going for my uncle's and aunties wedding, I believe. And um and yeah, we started going there, my mum kept going. And there was this one guy there, uh, he was like one of one of the main people in the church and did loads of stuff for the church and and yeah, and he used to come up I remember he used to come up to me and like offer me biscuits after the service and stuff. Kinda like creepy like the typical like what you'd expect on films and stuff like the creepy guy coming up and offering candy or um yeah it was kind of like that and um and as a kid I was like oh this is great I'm getting like more biscuits than the other kids and and (laughs) and stuff and then eventually he ended up speaking to my mom and they ended up uh, becoming friends so it seemed as though he sort of came through me to my mom like sort of like in a looking back now it was like a targeting kind of thing and um and so
0: at this point were your parents divorced at this point i'm guessing oh yeah yeah um
1: so my parents separated um before i could even remember like when i was around four years old um and we actually got evicted from the house because my dad just kind of went off and his name was on the rent and stuff um so we got evicted we had to live with my nan and stuff um and then eventually got our own house and stuff and then that's when where we started going to church and around that time a few years past and, and yeah that's when we started going to church so my dad was never really it was in my life but it was never anything massive and i didn't really have a relationship with my dad and i actually remember wishing i had other dads like my friends dads and stuff i'd see him playing football with them and stuff and um just being involved in the life and i remember wishing that i had that and that's like really a key part in my um in my story just wishing that i had Um, a dad and so when they started dating um after they met and stuff they they went on a date which we were invited which was a little bit odd and so we went along on a date with this guy and Mm -hmm. my mom um and yeah we went along for the first day and then we started staying there um and then it was the second time we stayed there that the sexual abuse started and this was um due to Mm -hmm. oh sorry about that um sorry (laughs) and this was due to um i had this fear of water from when i was like really young and i always needed someone to like be there while i was like getting my hair washed and stuff that was like a really big fear i always had this fear of drowning do you know why um, what was that sorry
0: do you know why you had that fear was there any particular reason (laughs) you can recall or no just
1: no not that i can recall no um i i actually only let one person washed my hair when I was younger and it was um I called her my auntie Jackie but she was actually the woman who my dad cheated on my mum with (laughs) um but my mum became friends with her when they found out um so yeah she she became really close and I only let her wash my hair she was like the best person ever um and yes she actually (laughs) this is actually a key part in, in my story and I always forget to say it and I don't know why but Whenever she'd be washing my hair and stuff, she'd tell me to look up to the ceiling and talk to a guy called Jack in the ceiling and I could tell him all my worries and my problems and and he'd help me through my day-to-day life. Uh, I don't know where she came up with that, but um, yeah, that was like a a key part. And then back to... Sorry, this is a bit all over, but back to meeting him and staying over. The second time we stayed over when the sexual abuse started, um, he he offered to help me wash my hair. And at this time through the sort of weeks and months of him getting to know my mom uh it became like real close to me and you know like I always wanted a dad and I thought at the time sort of subconsciously I don't remember thinking it exactly but I think this is what was going on I was like oh this could be my dad so I sort of cling to him and if you ask like anyone who was around at the time it was like was inseparable and I'm sure you can see from the video and stuff and the pictures used in the video you know like you wouldn't yeah, it was like everyone thought that was really close and stuff. And so I was like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. I want him to wash my hair and everything like that. And um, and then the second time we stayed, got in uh, the shower, and, uh, and yeah, the sexual abuse started. And um, and then this the sexual abuse continued as we moved in, as I started getting older, until I was 13. Um, and then it didn't just stop, it faded out um so it would happen sometimes when I got back from school and then um something small had happened like yeah just something really small had happened um and then eventually it became nothing and this is where like I understood what had happened and there was actually a situation where I confronted him about what had happened when I was younger and I was like L- like I know that this was wrong and I think this is when I was around 14 maybe 15 and I was like, oh, I know that this was wrong. And then this is when he sort of got violent with me. I think it was a way to make sure that I stayed quiet. Um,
0: now, that was something so, I was going to ask you. Before, before you turned 14 and had this confrontation, was there anybody that knew about what was happening before that time? No. So you didn't tell anybody?
1: No, not at all. Um, yeah, it was I, – I didn't actually know that – uh that it was wrong, it was like he told me that this is what dads did, and stuff like that, and I, I didn't know any difference, like I said, I was like not really close with my dad, and like he'd never sort of bathed me or anything like that. so it sounds just, like
0: he groomed you,
1: yeah, and as a kid, you just accept whatever an adult tells you and and it's weird because in a way, it became like a chore like I didn't like it, it was very uncomfortable. But it was just something I had to do. So I remember, like, I, I like I can go back to certain memories where I'd want to go on my game and stuff, and then I knew that I'd had to do this before, and it's like, oh, God, I've got to do this. But it wasn't like concerning. Um, and then yeah, but going back to like what my auntie Jackie told me, I remember when I was really young and I was really uncomfortable while the abuse was happening in in the shower and stuff. I'd go back to talking to the guy in the in the roof that she told me to to talk to um to like distract me from what was going on and she actually passed away um like around the time like around the time the abuse was happening so it was like I feel like she sort of rescued me in a way from like it affecting me because I just used to dissociate into speaking to this imaginary like character
0: that's really Um, powerful
1: mm, yeah yeah so yeah and then back to where I was now. So he started getting violent after after I confronted him because I think that fear came into him about, um, you know, I could just go and tell someone. And the ways he would be violent was sort of ways that wouldn't mark me on the surface. So like strangling me or like hitting me in the stomach, stuff like that, or like nipping me, which sounds odd, but he would nip me uh, like in public. If something I was saying, like, I remember going on about um, the Jimmy Savile situation and I was like talking about like pedophiles and stuff and this was in front of my family and under the table you, like twisted my leg and I knew that means oh I need to shut up basically or something worse will happen um, and so yeah yeah that's where it kind of went to and then um, I started feeling suicidal when I was like 14 around the same time I confronted him. Um, I think my worst fear was anyone finding out what happened even though I wanted it to be out I, I just in like in young guys especially it's I remember friends at school making jokes about pedophiles and stuff and I just thought what would they say about me if they knew that this is what happened to me and he also played on that as well like it it'd be like um oh imagine if your friends knew what what had happened and stuff and you know that was such a big fear for me so I felt extremely trapped uh, and there was some other stuff going on like had, I discovered cameras in my room so one night I was laid in bed and you know like on webcams where a little light comes on when the webcam's on so I'm laid in bed and like I'm like facing down and at the bottom of my bed was my desk um, with the webcam on top so I'm looking down and I see the webcam light come on and I'm like that is so creepy so like I sort of hide under and I crawl down to, to, to the desk and, um, and I turn on my computer screen from the, from the back and the computer's on camera mode so you can see my, my whole room, you can see it. And I like originally thought like, oh, I've been hacked or something like that. And there was this app he had on everyone's computer called TeamViewer or something like that. And it's where you can control a computer from your computer on the same network So he was using that to click on my camera mode to see into my room and watch me, Um, which like was so like one of the points where I'm like, oh, God, I'm in proper danger here. What's going off? What is he doing with these videos and stuff like that?
0: How did you find out that it was him? I'm sure that that was if he was kind of abusing you up until this point in different ways. I'm sure it came through your head. But how did you end up finding out it was him? Instead of yeah, so I knew the only him. one...
1: Yeah, sorry. Um, I, I knew that the only person who knew how to use the app was him. Um, uh, But when I definitely knew is when it came on once, it was a Sunday morning, an evening, it was fruit day. I remember being on my phone on, um on my bed, and I look forward and I can see the light again. So I quickly run downstairs to see if I can catch him in the act. And he actually had it on his phone as well. And he was sat in the living room, and as I come through the door, he's like this. You know what I mean? You can see that he's trying to get something, something off his screen. And that's when I was like, oh, I know. But I didn't dare, like, confront him about that. And there was also, later on, um, I discovered um, a little camera in the top of my uh, room, like in the corner, like a little hole, and he'd connected it to the, to the like, box that records the CCTV outside. So he had that all on his computer and stuff. Um which, yeah, that was Did you take him down or
0: how did you handle that after you found out about him?
1: I just had to accept it. I remember, um, I, I, as I got changed and stuff like that, after that, I'd hold up a towel and stuff, you know, like you would on the beach and that. Um, and yeah, I just dealt with it like that, but it kind of showed that I knew about it. So it was like this elephant in the room kind of situation, um, for like so long and, and knowing what, Obviously, what he would have seen, you know, me getting changed and stuff like that. I was like, that is when, like, everything starts to dawn down on me. Like, I'm so trapped, I'm not getting out. Um, and he would track my phone and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm basically in this situation where I feel so trapped and and eventually become suicidal thoughts. And and then that led me to the day when I actually told someone. So I was in the bathroom and I was meant to be going to work at, like, 3 o'clock. And um, he was going to be dropping me off and I'm like sitting in the bathroom and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to run the shower and then I'm going to cut my wrists with a blade and then just sit in the, sit in the shower and just bleed out, hopefully. Uh, that's what I was thinking at the time. And, um, and just as I'm like cutting into my wrist, um, my girlfriend calls me and I'm like, should I answer? Should I answer? So I just answered and she's like, I know something's wrong. And I'm like, what? And I'd been acting normal. And the weird thing is she'd never call me first because I told her never to call me first because if he saw someone calling me or something, he would get angry or suspicious or something like that. So I always said, don't ever call me first. I'll always call you. And so she calls me and she says, I know something's wrong. And she keeps digging and stuff. I'm like, oh, nothing's wrong. And then eventually it just comes, everything just comes out. And and. And yeah, that was the first time I ever ever I ever told anyone about it.
0: <laughs> how did that make you feel when you told her about it? And how did she react to it?
1: Yeah, it was very dissociating. Like It was like, oh my God. But in the moment, it was like this weird realization that a part of my brain had been adjusted to like, I could just tell someone. So it, it was like, kind of like, I told her and then like, logic kicked in like, oh, I could have done this the whole time. But yeah, it was a weird, weird feeling. And... And she was, like, we was both, like, young, so she didn't really know what to say. Um, But she was, like, okay, um, I need to tell my mom, I need to tell my mom. So um, she went off the phone. Obviously, she was, like, consoling me, making sure that I'm going to be okay. Um, But she went off the phone and, and went to tell her mom and then we sort of came up with this plan that I'd pretend to go to work Um, and there was actually a police station next to where I worked and um, I pretended to go go into work and the last thing I said to him was um, I don't want to keep this secret anymore that was the last thing I said to him and the last thing he said to me was stop it with that attitude Ryan he like tried to grip my sleeve as I left but I just got out of the car Um, so I had a feeling that I knew um, like what was going to happen so I went into work and I was, it was weird because I felt this guilt. Um, and I actually speak about that in the video as well. Like I felt this guilt that I was going to like get him sent away to jail basically. And yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling. And I think only survivors will know that feeling of someone that's hurt you this much, but you're still, there's a, the like good memories surface I feel in them moments, like the the good memories throughout the years. Cause it wasn't like I was chained in a basement in every day which does happen of course that happens but that wasn't the situation for me um like we went on expensive holidays he sort of saved um money problems and stuff like that so it was like
0: but that's important weird- because that's how a lot of these cases start they call it stockholm syndrome almost where you become attached because that is how it is. Abuse is a part of it, but there's so much grooming that goes into actually building a relationship with the victim that you have these weird attachments to them, especially if it's somebody in your family or somebody that you see making your mom happy or you're afraid of what it's going to do. There's a lot of consequences of speaking up about any type of abuse that you go through. And that's a really scary thing, especially when you're young. And that's something I... I really emphasize people to try to put yourself in in your 13, 14-year-old you know, position, 16, even 18. Think about trying to deal with these heavy issues and having those consequences be knocking at your front door of, oh, if you say this, you might send somebody to jail and everybody's going to know that you did it, right? That's mm-hmm. really scary, especially like you said, if some of the memories and a lot of the memories were good and your video portrays that so well. It shows him being you know, you see him dancing and playing in the pool and he looks like a normal dad in your video. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's yeah. like and he disguised what he did to you so well that not even your own mom knew what was going on, right?
1: Yeah, that's it, yeah. Yeah, it's um well we came to find out later, um, that he was sort of uh, a little bit experienced in this. Like he'd abused a lot more people before me, um, like a lot of people, so
0: Wow. it was like how did you find um, that out
1: so people actually knew before um, when they first when when my mum first met him um, he told her that there was allegations made against him once um, and then everyone around at the time like there was the vicar at the church who was involved in this and so many people were like telling my mum like oh yeah it was all just false allegations it got you know proven wrong or whatever so that was kind of always there. And then actually, this is all over, but it's just there's so much to unpack in this. But I once came home from school. I can't remember what age this was. I want to say like 13 or something like that. And I, and I came back from um, from after school football and there was police at the house. So I go in and, um, and they're like, oh, there's been an allegation made against you. So this was two so far um and they they actually a social worker actually asked me oh has he been abusing you and I said no so like that was such a like opportunity for me to tell someone but it was like the thing is is that they were in the other room so to me I remember thinking like if I tell them what's going to be the situation are they going to take me off to the car then there's going to be this scuffle and um, but if when I go, he's going to kill my family while I'm being te- taken away. You know, there were so many things in that that it just couldn't work. So it was like, yeah, I think there needs to be like a change in the way that happens. Like if you ask a kid if they're getting abused in their house next door to their potential abusers, like I don't think that's a great idea. But and yeah, so that case kind of started and and everyone was on his side and stuff again. But I ov- obviously knew about the truth. Like I knew that he had abused both of these people. And, um, and then it turned out that the guy had actually killed himself. The guy that accused him of it, um, well, came up and told the police, um, he killed himself many years before. So a few days later it was like, oh, um, we can't do anything else because, um, the key the victim or whatever has is, is ended his own life so that was like a like a massive moment for me like yeah i just felt like quite a bit of guilt but um and then yeah like it was weird because in a way he was celebrating this this poor guy's death and he knew that he did it so
0: oh my gosh, you know. that is so heavy and how old were you at this point
1: so I think I think I was 13 14 around that age
0: I can't imagine trying to process that at 13 at 13 I was worried about boys having cooties still trying to look cute and like learning makeup and you know maybe getting a first curling iron and getting my ears pierced that's so heavy to think about having to hold those decisions on your shoulders of is this something I should tell people because it's really heavy for me and for you I want to ask what? Point was it for you where it clicked in your mind that this is wrong? Because I think too, looking back at how young that was, whenever you were kind of indoctrinated into that grooming process of this is just what dads do. This is just how it is. It became like normalized for you. What was it that broke that for you where you suddenly were starting to think, is this right? Because this doesn't seem right. And it's, it doesn't feel right anymore. And I, I think it's wrong.
1: Mm, yeah so there's a like number of things like as you get older you become more aware so i was aware of the secrecy of it um and like a few like anecdotal things like at school i remember um like kids making jokes about pedophiles and stuff and i was like curious like oh wait that kind of sounds like what's going on (laughs) with me um and then also i watched a a documentary i used to love documentaries even when i was young and um uh, I watched a documentary I think it's called The Devil Child or something like that which is a really horrible name but um this it's about this young girl and she endures a lot of sexual abuse in her childhood and then she becomes um like um like really poorly and mentally ill and stuff and traumatizes um this foster family and stuff but I remember hearing about her sexual abuse and I was like oh that's what's going on and then that was like sort of the one of the key moments where it clicked like yeah this is this is what's been happening
0: wow so I feel even at those ages that's not something kids that age and I think the conversation should change to where kids are made more aware of these things because I think part of the problem is, for one, you go to school and you're not taught how to identify an abuser or really what abuse is. And we're so focused on teaching kids almost how to be over-sexualized that we're not teaching them how to empower their body and to almost practice sacred practices with their body of consent and understanding what a boundary is, right? And I think that that's, that's really amazing that you – came to that conclusion at such a young age. And I know for you, it probably felt like it wasn't soon enough. But I think a lot of people, I know people that are in their 50s and 60s, you know, that are with an abusive partner and still don't have that conceptualization of this is wrong. Or Mm. maybe they do, but they don't have the courage to talk about it or to do something about it or to leave, right? And here you are, you're a, a brand new teenager, right? And you're having to conceptualize that you're being sexually and physically and really emotionally and mentally abused too. That's such a a, a programming that you go through from such a young age and you come to accept that this is just kind of how it is and you almost have to find out otherwise through a friend or how you said watching a documentary of what's wrong and what's right instead of having that empowering information come from your education or even parents understanding how to talk to their kids about that. So, yeah. how was he, how was his and your mom's relationship? Did they have a good, loving relationship? And it was something she was totally shocked about, or something she would have been, or how did she kind of, how does she fit into this and how did she react to all of this?
1: Yeah, so, um, he was kind of on the surface, like around people and stuff. It was like the life of the party and stuff like that. Um, he was, very sociable, but like, so even behind closed doors, it was like, it insult everyone all the time, so my sister, my mum, like, it'd would call them fat, and like, loads, like, just curse at them, and stuff all the time, and, and so, the relationship was kind of like, very like, controlled on one side, in my opinion, um, and, and yeah, like, Yeah, that's about it. Like, I just remember seeing how controlled my mum was, like, financially and stuff. Um, And, yeah, yeah, that's all. And it was mainly my sister that got a lot of the wrath of the bullying and stuff. Like, she was verbally, like, destroyed on a daily basis. Like, it was awful to watch. Like, he'd criticise everything she was wearing, like, the way she looked, just... Horrible, and she kind of enjoyed the same control and stuff that I enjoyed um but I think that was down to him not looking like suspicious, like if he just controlled me and not my sister, it'd kind of look a bit odd, so she enjoyed the sort of similar kind of controlling things that as I did so yeah,
0: did your sister have any idea at all, or did she go through anything like <laughs> that, or was it just centralized on you? <coughs>
1: Yeah so she she didn't have a she didn't, no one had any idea of what was happening um she didn't experience sexual abuse or anything like that um she was yeah she there was actually a situation once where she walked in on on what was happening but you kind of explained this away as something else i think it was like a medical issue he said um and yeah Megan was uh, my sister Megan um she was so young that she just was like oh, okay. Um so yeah.
0: And so when you finally did start talking about this, what happened after you were a little bit older and now you're using your voice and you're talking about it? Did your mom end up finding out and how was her reaction when you sh- when she actually was confronted with the fact that you went through this?
1: Yeah, so when I was at the police station, um they took me to this separate place and this was, like, a place specially for children speaking up about abuse. So I was in this room. I was being recorded. And, like, after the first interview, I did, like, two that night, and I was there for, like, four or five hours. After the first one, um, it was, like, oh, we're going to arrest him now. And I was, like, wow, that's, like, crazy. And I remember feeling this, like, joy inside me, like, oh, my God, I'm actually free and so they went to my house, and my mum and sister was in. I oh, know my sister was at work, so my mum and him were in. And they came in and arrested him in front of her. And um mum was like, wait, another one? Another one? Who's this this time? They wouldn't tell her. And then he went upstairs, and apparently he was, like, messing around. I think he was trying to destroy, like, evidence or whatever Um but he went upstairs and they were like, come on, you need to go. You're not even meant to be upstairs because um, apparently he wanted a jumper or something like that, made an excuse to run upstairs. And then in this time, uh, the policeman got a bit annoyed with him and apparently just said, oh, it's Ryan that's made the allegation. And then that's when my mum found out and um, like sort of lashed out at him and were trying to scream at him, but he just kept his head down and got put in back at police car
0: oh my goodness and then how were you right there whenever all that was happening
1: no thankfully like that was a big fear of mine like I, like I said earlier like with the social worker situation like I didn't want to be there when everything came out in front of him because that would have just scared me um, <clears throat> so I was still at the the police station or this special place where children can speak up about abuse so. uh, and yeah they, they went and arrested him at the same time and yeah
0: Oh my gosh. So he gets arrested. Are you knowing what's happening? Are they telling you, hey, we're going to go arrest him? And are you kind of being walked through what's happening? And what happens to you after that happens? Do you just go home after that? Do they keep you there? What happened after that event?
1: Yeah. So when they went to arrest him, uh, they didn't keep me updated with anything that happened after that. Um, um, But I just went to my girlfriend's house, slept on the sofa and stayed there for like three days. I was like, I don't know, I had this feeling that I'd be able to manipulate my family to be on his side. So I kind of didn't want to be around anyone. Um, But that night my mum did come and see me with my sister and was like crying and stuff. And we sort of spoke a little bit then, but I never like spoke about it openly to them all. Um, And yeah, so... I stayed there and then eventually I ended up staying at my uncle's, um, with them. I oh, know they were staying at my mom's friend. So I didn't end up living back with my mom for, I think it was like two or two months maybe.
0: Oh my gosh. That had to have felt really dramatic for you. Were you still going to school at this time too?
1: Uh, I was at college, like in between, it's not the same college as you have. It's like, um... Like, yeah, just after high school to get into uni. Um, so I was at college. And, yeah, I, I only took, like, two days off and then I was straight I was straight back to college because it was weird because I, I'd always known about this. Like, it wasn't such a big, like, shock for me, but I feel like I should have took a little bit of time off because after that, things, like, for me mentally went downhill a little bit. How so? Um. So this is this was the first sign which is a little bit odd i always like to get my hair cut like every two weeks and i'm very i'm usually very like um very like want to look up like the best i can and stuff and i just let myself like fully go like didn't cut my beard or anything a little bit like now but <laughs> um <laughs> and um and then my like my hair were all bushy and stuff and then i started starving myself so i didn't eat for like properly for like a month and i went into like ketosis and i had to go to a and e because i'd lost so much weight Uh, i was really ill and um and yeah i didn't go out the house in that sort of starvation period for like so long i couldn't see anyone um
0: what was going through your mind because that had to have been so that's a lot to deal with just overnight really what was going through your mind at that time
1: it felt like everything was catching up with me. Like I had that burst of, you know, freedom, happiness and everything like that in these periods where I was like living with my uncle and stuff. I was like having fun and stuff. And then it got to a point, I feel that everything just caught up and I just started thinking about everything and the memories and stuff were coming back to me. And and like, I started hearing opinions from people like there was this old man who lived near us who was saying that I was like making it up and stuff. And, and then, one of our family friends went to see him the night after he got arrested and I was like why would you do that like what you just it just seems like you believe him and 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 I remember the family friend actually telling me like oh I felt sorry for him and stuff and like oh this these little comments from everyone else just built up and then that's when I sort of went into this kind of I'd describe it as like a depressive state where I just didn't want to talk to anyone I didn't want to eat I just wanted to sort of sit there and just like yeah just not do anything
0: it was probably too the first time in your life that I don't want to say the heaviness left because you get a whole different type of heaviness when you realize that you're a survivor right but did you feel light at all after that happened and you didn't have to deal with seeing him anymore or did you still feel that guilt that you thought that you would feel if you spoke up
1: yeah I felt a little bit of guilt um but it was just a short period of time this like I don't want to put anyone off anyone off speaking up like life gets amazing it's just dealing with these little little hiccups you know like I just felt like I like I say I I carried on with everything when I should have took a little bit of time off to sort of deal with stuff a little bit better um and, yeah, I was just a bit hard on myself, like, just getting back to college, wanting to do work. But I ended up just leaving college, quitting job, quitting my job and everything like that. So, yeah, I think it's just important to give yourself time in situations like that. Just even though you may not feel like it and you want to just get back to stuff, just give yourself time to, like, process everything. And that's what I should have done. But, yeah.
0: It's really hard to know what the right path is to heal, right? I think yeah. a lot of times when something bad happens, and I see it all the time, even if it's not something as serious as what you went through, but let's just say a normal breakup, or you lose your job, or you're going through some type of stressful situation. A lot of people, I feel, they make themselves more busy. So they almost don't have to confront what's going yeah, on, right? So and like sit with it. And I think that uh, you're right. That's that's an important part of healing, but it's so hard to know when to do that, to like actually sit with that sucky feeling and say, oh my gosh, I don't have this perpetrator looking over my shoulder 24 hours a day, but now that I have time to think about all of this, I don't want to think about it, right? Like I don't uh, – how do I not think about it? It's scary to sometimes I think, especially whenever you come out of something, then you get to look back and say – oh my gosh, look at all that time that I spent with this person or look at all that time that I went through this. And it can be so overwhelming and yeah. traumatizing, even just on your body and your mood and your energy.
1: Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And like the thing for me was is that I kept thinking about like the influences he has had on me as a person and stuff. Like the person who I am today is also down to – obviously the things he did the negative things he did but also the way that he brought me up in a way like i said in the video as well you raised me he did raise me and like a lot of the reasons like i was terrified of a lot of things as a child i'm not sure why but i was just scared of a lot of things and like he was one of the reasons that got me over a lot of the fears that i had but obviously replaced it with this you know trauma so yeah it was such a weird feeling um in that period of time, just trying to deal with everything. It was very hard.
0: Well, obviously now you're, you're speaking about this and I want to get into your video and kind of how you've progressed. But after going through this period where you're feeling really depressed, you're feeling heavy, you're not talking to anybody, including your family almost. How did you start to climb out of that? At what point was your tipping point to instead of keep going down in the darkness to where you started to see the light and started to follow it?
1: Yeah, uh, it's quite one of the reasons. It's quite weird, but we got a puppy like just before I ended up getting into this sort of um, state. So the puppy was always with me through like all the everything that was going on. It was like the reason I got up in the morning really, and um, and like he got because as he got older, I needed to walk him so the only reason I'd go out is to walk the dog. And then this sort of expanded to, Oh, I'm going to walk him in the morning then I'm going to uh, run with him in the afternoon. I'm going to go somewhere else. And that sort of built my confidence a bit more. I ended up meeting up with people with the, with my puppet and, and, and yeah, that sort of socializing with people more and stuff, but more internally, it's just, I, I kind of, I don't know. I kind of started to realize that, uh, what happened wasn't my fault. And, you know, I shouldn't feel guilty and you know, I feel like all them emotions you just have to just, like I said, you just have to process. And once you get past that point, that's when I was like, Oh my God, again, I'm free. I can do what I want. And I remember I just used to go out for hours, just knowing that no one's going to be calling me up, asking me where I am and stuff. And, um, and just meeting up with my friends all the time and just, yeah, just accepting sort of everything that happened and, um, and enjoying you know, my new life in a way it felt like a new life. So, yeah.
0: What advice would you give if anybody's watching this right now and whether it's something they're going through at work, trauma that they've dealt with that's deep inside of them, that's wanting to come out or wanting to heal and they don't know where to start. What advice would you give to somebody who's kind of at that tipping point but not quite there yet? How can somebody start to get there?
1: Yeah, I think the main thing is just trying to switch your your mindset like it's so easy like think about your day to day tasks like when you know everyone goes through this but you know you've got to get something done and some days you'll think oh um, oh, I can wait I can do that tomorrow um, and then some days you're like on it you're like yeah I'm going to get this done and, and it's, it's so weird how your mindset can affect your actions and so I think just trying to implement a more positive mindset on everything Like it's so easy to get caught in your own issues and like I always say this but never uh, compare your own problems to someone else's and never judge someone because they haven't been through what you've been through and stuff Um, so yeah I think it's just whatever's going on trying to switch your mindset and just focus on, on the positives of the situation like when I'd think about what I can do now what I couldn't do before and and, you know, in abuse situations specifically, like, trying to distance yourself from the connection with that person and realizing that they wasn't sort of in the relationship for the same reasons as you. Like, you was in it because, you know, you are a child and you didn't have a choice and you loved this person because he was your dad, whereas this person didn't love you. This person used you and, you know... That was one of the things that you know helped me get past the point of um, that guilty feeling and stuff like just like just realizing like hang on a minute this guy he didn't have good intentions from the start so why do I feel guilty now he's getting what he deserves so so yeah
0: I think those things are so powerful because a lot of people go through pain's relative right. So somebody could go through something way worse than what you've gone through or way less than what you've went through. But in certain people that go throughout the spectrum, that pain can feel that same exact way, just that heaviness and that depressiveness. And depression on any level just feels like crap, right? And I think a lot of people have trouble pulling themselves out of that and realizing, am I going to let my story use me for my whole life, even though it wasn't a story Uh that I chose? Or at what point am I going to get up and use my story and figure out why it happened to me and what I can do to empower others with it? And that's something that attracted me so much to you just as a person because this is the next part I want to get into. You actually created this incredible visual that, as I said earlier, was sent to me, which I think is really impressive because you live all the way in the UK and I don't even really see these stories pop up much in the United States And I want you to talk about your video, but it was called A Letter to My Abuser. And I want you to talk about what inspired you to make this and the story behind this incredibly impactful video.
1: Yeah, so a little bit like what I was saying before about the guilt people feel like there are periods in time like for your whole life as a survivor that you're going to have these moments of, you know, of not weakness, but kind of like a relapse I don't know but you're going to have these moments where you're going to think about things and you're going to um, look back and and that's what the video is trying to represent you know like a survivor's thoughts a survivor's um, yeah thoughts and feelings towards what has happened to him and so it's not to sort of represent and make people think like oh this poor guy uh, look what he's gone through, He's like he's so brave, that's not what it's meant to think, it's just to give people an insight into into what may what thoughts may occur in a survivor's mind and so at the very start um, there's clips and stuff real clips, real footage of me with my abuser Um, and I include that for a reason, like it really shows a reality and it's like emotions to people like people can see the situation like look how close these people look and what that's going on what like what and then it makes you question like what does abuse actually look like because there's this stereotype that is given from movies and and charity videos that you know kids are um chained up in a dirty house and and the abuser just constantly abuses them when that's not like the case in a lot of situations so there's a lot of different points in the video like that represent different things. Like at the very end sort of, you didn't break me. Uh, I hope you never rest in peace. There, are two of the things that I said at the end. Um, It's like a lot of people said to me about the ending. Oh, that seems very bitter that you said, I hope you never rest in peace. Uh, Is this like eating away at you? And I'm like, not at all. Like this isn't my daily thoughts as as a survivor. I don't think, Oh, I hope you rot in hell and, and stuff like that. That's not, like what I'm thinking every day but this is the thoughts that do come into your mind sometimes and I think it's really important to accept that because some people won't be able to relate and we spoke about this a little bit before the podcast but some people won't be able to relate to the sort of what you would describe as heavy you know healed people who are like I forgive them and I accept what has happened, happened and stuff Um, some people are never going to be able to re- relate to that and the, the reason for me expressing that particular view was that reason like people are going to be able to relate and say yeah I don't forgive him and I still have negative emotions towards you and I'll probably have them I think I'll have them for the rest of my life and I think that's okay and I don't think that means you're not healed I don't think that at all like you can be healed and not forgive someone it doesn't weigh on me I don't feel weight from not forgiving him and it like the the main people that said it to me were religious people and like in the Bible, it says, if you truly repent, then you'll be forgiven for your sins. And like, he wasn't sorry for what he did. You know, why would he continue to do it to, to people before me, to people maybe after me? So that's my sort of mindset on, on that particular thing at the end. But yeah, there's there's there were loads of different aims in the video when I first started planning it. And it was very spare in the moment thing. Um and it came from me waking up, like, from a sort of, Not a night terror, but a, a, a bad dream. And I thought, how many other survivors are going through this, you know? Like, waking up from a dream of, of, you know, something that has happened to them in the past. And so, you know, that's what triggered my thought. Oh, I'm going to express this in a video. And I've always loved making films and stuff. So, yeah, that was the aim behind it.
0: I think what you said will relate to a lot of people because I've met more people than not that have gone through some type of trauma. And a lot of times they put guilt on themselves for not forgiving who or what impacted them and traumatized them. And I think that there's a fine line with forgiveness that people realize like you forgive yourself first. There's almost two parts to it. And I think forgiving another person can happen if how you said, if it's almost – synonymous with what you're trying to do some people really are sorry that they do something to somebody other people like you said your intent might have been love and the other person's intent was pure abuse they had not a single thought of actually loving you right and so that can be really heavy to figure out that relationship because well On my end, I I was loving him and I was trusting him and I was loyal to him, right? Where on the other hand, abusers are normally the opposite. A lot of times they're narcissistic scum, you know, in a lot of ways. They don't care about anybody but themselves. They're not worried about how you feel or how their actions could impact other people. And like you said, they they continue that pattern. And I think that that's important for people that there's no right or wrong way to heal. Some people can take that approach and they – They can forgive and manifest a certain type of love or connection or just a deep forgiveness to another person. But I think a lot of times that happens, how you said, if the other person is willing to go some way to where they're walking forward in that same direction and other abusers and other people and other tormentors, they want to stay behind the the sidelines and stay exactly where they're at and they want you to keep coming to them, right? And that's Mm. not always something that makes us feel good at the end of the day if we're pouring all this extra energy into trying to forgive somebody who doesn't really even care about our forgiveness, right? And I think that that was a really powerful line that, how you said, some people might not have been expecting that. But I think from your perspective, you're showing that you're working on your healing. You're providing content. You're getting the story out. You're finding ways to heal yourself. And you've almost stopped caring about well, how, is, uh, how are other people going to look at me and saying, how yeah. do I look and feel better about myself, right? How do I amend yeah. this relationship with myself, come to terms with what happened to me, and then give the gift to other people of showing a path of healing and sharing that you're not alone and understanding that it's okay to be a male and talk about these really hard things. Yeah, Your video – and for people, as you were saying, for people who haven't watched and I'm going to link it below so that way everybody can go watch it and I really encourage you to. You do. You see this dynamic of these clips look like they come from any normal family that is really loving and close. You see a dad in a pool with kids. You see a dad in a living room dancing on film with, with the whole family. And from the outside looking in, I think what you said it, – it, it gives a different perspective of what does abuse look like. We see people all the time and assume that abuse isn't happening around us. But more often than not, it could be happening in our neighbor's house. It could be happening to some degree on our house. Yeah. and Maybe we're not aware of it just like your family wasn't, right? In your own neighborhood, yeah. in your own city, there's so many instances where this happens. But because the facade on the outside is, well, that person's super charming. That family looks like they get along. People just assume that – Somebody like you couldn't go through this because from the outside looking in, you looked like your typical normal family.
1: Yeah. And back to what you were saying, like, about healing and stuff like that, like, who am I going to help if I just express, um, oh, I'm healed, I'm happy, I forgive my abuser, oh, I'm on top of the world, I'm living life, no worries. Like, that. that is not, obviously, I'm not trying to, like, sort of downgrade anyone for how they... Thing. but I do see it a lot where people are like oh I'm meditating this morning and, and, I'm, and I'm going to do my um, exercise this afternoon and I'm going to like all on this sort of self-help kind of page but they're not expressing the difficulties that they actually have and, and the majority of the time it's all fake because we know as we know inside as human beings every day we have ups and downs there's no one that has a full day where they think oh I'm positive today I'm going to do this and you know no matter what you've been through in your life you're gonna through every single day. There's issues that come up, and as as a survivor, I wanted to express that specifically because, in a way, I'm tired of seeing people like telling people how they should be healing. Like, just because you are forgiven your abuser, and, and that doesn't mean it's right for everyone else. You know, um, and it just makes people feel when I when I hear like. Stories of oh I went and spoke to my abuser and stuff like that it, it kind of makes people who would never even want to be seen near this person ever again kind of feel like oh I'm a bit naive, I'm a bit stupid and that's how I even felt when people were telling me what they thought of the video like oh you seem bitter towards this person and stuff like no don't tell me how I'm supposed to feel towards this person and don't tell me that means I'm still broken or I'm still hurt like you don't know what i'm feeling inside and you don't know what other survivors are feeling inside and it's just i just feel like that's so important to talk about but on the forgiveness side it opens up a really interesting conversation where we think about like the abusers are people too like these are people these are people who have been through stuff in their life and what has led them to this point and that is one of the massive issues we have with this whole you know su- what survivors and activists the issue we have because What are we fighting for here? Are we, you know, we trying to incarcerate these people and lock them up forever? Are we trying to understand these people and what has led to led to this point? Are we even trying to rehabilit rehabilitate these people? Do they deserve being rehabilitated? You know, and you know, it's such an interesting topic because these people are monsters. What they have done is disgusting. And as a survivor, like my views are always contrasted between um you know keeping people safe which is uh, there's there's like loads of different reasons why what we do to an abuser after um you know after they've done this act um so we're we trying to rehabilitate them we're we trying to punish punish them we're we trying to deter people from doing the same thing um and protecting the public of course so like there's all these different aspects and then there's also like prevention so how do, we, how do we prevent this happening again? And, you know, that conversation is absolutely, like, huge and I'm sure we'd need, like, specialists and stuff to analyse that properly. And um, But, yeah, like, one of the hardest things for me is, what I'm trying to say is the hardest thing for me as a survivor is kind of thinking, like, this was a person. What has led them to this point? If he was alive, um, what should have happened to him? what would have happened when he got out. There's all these different things like in this topic that are so difficult.
0: And something we didn't cover yet, but you just said, just so people are clear. So he yeah. did pass away, correct?
1: Yeah. And it was just before, uh, sort of the trial date was to be, the trial date was to be set, but I was informed that it was going to be very soon. Uh, and so he passed away under sort of suspicious circumstances, um, which could be suicide or uh, something else. But, um, And, yeah, that's still just being investigated uh, into his death.
0: Wow. Those points that you made just a few seconds ago, too, I couldn't agree more with you. And that's something that's come up multiple times when I've been talking with survivors and activists is there is – it's grossly neglected the psychology behind both the survivor and or victim, depending on what part of their story they're in, and abusers and tormentors and pedophiles. I mean – This is the type of thing that we should be taught as children. We shouldn't be taught necessarily about being – I shouldn't say necessarily. We shouldn't all be empowering kids to sexualize themselves. What we should be encouraging them to do is study and understand what an abuser could look like, traits of an abuser potentially, and what abusers look for in a victim, right? Because I think that's the other part too. A lot of abusers – do feed on the gullibleness of somebody that's an adult and they're hurting in their lifetime or they're needing something or they have a void in their life that needs filled or they're depressed or children who are very gullible and are very open to suggestions and very open to being trusting. And there's a lot of conversation and context that is missing throughout childhood and adulthood on how to identify those things.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um and I think the most difficult thing is there's no one picture for a for a potential paedophile. There's no you know there's no like obvious sign of someone like this. They could you know, they could be sat next to you right now, you wouldn't know. Like that's one thing that one of the things that I've learned from this, like you just don't know and you it yeah. <laughs> I don't, um, it's 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 a massively hidden issue because if a child doesn't like, I didn't want anyone to know. At one point, I didn't want anyone to know what had happened. So if the child doesn't want you to know, and the person who's doing it is hiding it so well, then how do we, as you know, outsiders, first discover that, and then how do we deal with, with that? It's that's why it's such a difficult topic because, you know, if someone steals your car. Um, there might be some CCTV somewhere. There might be some, you know, witnesses speaking up. But in this particular crime, it's just, and others around this, you know, sort of topic, rape and other things like that. Um, it's the same issue.
0: Absolutely. And I think, too, it's an even bigger issue on the side of males, right? There's so many cases that go unheard. And the cases that do come forward, primarily that we hear of, are from women. And so I think, too, there's that misunderstanding that the majority of survivors and victims are female. When, and I'm sure you would know a lot better than me, but have you learned any statistics on kind of what percentage of victims and survivors are actually men in comparison to women?
1: Yeah, I think uh, w- women is high, I believe it's higher. Is it one in six for men? Um, Yeah, I can't say off the top of my head. It's either one one in eight or one in six for men. Wow. Um, And I think it's it's one in three for women, so it's a lot, lot higher. Um,
0: That's crazy, though. One in every six to eight men, and even on the women's side. Like, that alone should blow people's minds. So that means, I mean, really, if you're sitting in a room of 20 people, there's going to be – about four of those that could potentially be men and six of those that could be women just in a small group of people. That is really mind blowing.
1: And I'm sure that's not um, just, you know, in the home and stuff that's like generally like sexual assault uh, or anything like that. Um, But it's like this whole issue uh, being brought to light at the minute, like women, um, you know, coming up and speaking about um, the issues that they face day to day, just, living in a world with, with men and, and perpetrators and stuff and and I, a common thing said is like not all men and that is like obviously it's a really like it's a really um I don't know how to say it like um like it's a, it's a really naive thing to say because you know, men as well, we feel like I've never personally felt like victimized or Uh, out on a walk I've never felt scared of a woman behind me you know but I've felt scared of a man walking behind me in the dark and stuff so we can relate to it too um and you know there's so I see so many people on my personal Instagram that are always like oh not all men are like this and and uh, gender isn't the issue gender kind of is the issue when the majority of the people doing this are men and it's not that we're saying that all men are to blame. What we are saying that there needs to be better education for for men and um, especially young guys, because even me growing up as a young guy, I remember hearing so many questionable things what my friends were saying about you know consent and stuff and some of the jokes made. And I, I can I can see the point of view that women come from when when they say they felt you know scared of men at points in the life. So yes, yeah.
0: And I think it's, a, it's too, a
1: difficult one at the moment,
0: but a hundred percent. And I think how men and women almost deal with it in some ways is different too. How you said it's it's very intimidating for a man to come forth and say these things because it's not as common. And a lot of men choose yeah. to stay silent. Where I think, on the contrary, with women, um, and I've told this story on another episode, I remember talking with friends growing up, really little elementary school, middle school, even high school. And you'd kind of joke about, like, you know, your creepy uncle Sam that you're going to have to see at dinner. And, oh, I hope he doesn't hit on you tonight. And, You know, you almost like, I feel like with girls, it's almost made as humor where it's not taken seriously and you kind of joke about it. Oh, just creepy uncle or creepy grandpa or creepy dad or creepy stepdad. Where men, it's really highly encouraged, I feel in our society to just stay quiet or you're weak or you're, uh, you know, you're, I don't really care about my language on here. You're a pussy if you come and talk about stuff, you know? And it's like, we need to really start having those conversations too that, If any child, it doesn't matter what the gender is, if there's a problem that a child is sensing with an adult, period, it should be a problem. There shouldn't be this – any humorizing or making a joke of something or on the male side telling them that, you know, you're going to be demasculated if you talk about this. Because I think that is so toxic and that goes back to what you were saying where, you know, you go on Instagram, for example – your story sticks out because it's the complete opposite of what you see 99% of that platform. You go on Instagram and you're scrolling and you see a bagel with somebody had for breakfast. You see somebody with their outfit of the day. You see the next, you see people having conversations through content that you would never even ask somebody. Like, I would never call you for, right? Or call any of my friends and say, hey, what's your outfit of the day today? <laughs> But for uh, some reason, yeah. we think that that's what we have to talk about on social media, right? We we have these yeah. conversations about things we'd never talk about, where uh, growing up, my best friends were my friends that knew my deepest, darkest secrets. Those were conversations that you had with real friends, right? I never talked about, oh, yeah, what are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm having this bagel. Let me show you a picture. Oh, look at the spice on it. Did you know that this salt is from wherever? And it's, we get so caught up on doing things like that, that we forget to have real conversations. And I think that that's what your video was, is a real conversation condensed into a couple minutes that people can scroll and say, wait, what is that? That's different than everything else in my feed. Right. Yeah. And for you, how did people react? I mean, I know I, I came right out and reached out to you and was like, holy crap, that was really impactful. How have other people reacted to your video?
1: Yeah, a lot of the same. Like, I've had so many survivors message me, and you know, say, "Oh, the bit at the end where you say you didn't break me—that has changed my life," and and stuff like that. so. So many like heartwarming messages. Like, I can't even say. Like, a few have made me cry. Like, massive <laughs> paragraphs. People tell me the story, and and you know, um, one of them I think said something on the lines of, um, "When I see my abuser in court, I'm going to tell him that he that he didn't break me." And I was like, "Oh my god!" Oh, I just and got like, chills. I welled up just from that video. And I was like, "Oh my god!" I don't even know what to say. And yeah, yeah, it's been it's been so it's been amazing. Just some of the reactions I've had. Um, yeah,
0: because you're putting, you're so vulnerable putting that out. I mean, you put actual videos and clips of your actual family. Has anybody else in your family watched it? And if so, what was their response to it?
1: Yeah. So before i put it out i sent it into we have like a little family group chat with my a couple of my uncles and aunties in and, and they all saw it and they was like wow that's really impactful and stuff so yeah there was there's no like like adverse um sort of opinions or anything There was all like supportive about it and and yeah they um they thought it was going to be helpful for people so how? I always make sure if I'm including, like, footage of them and stuff, like, my sister and stuff, I always make sure that it's all right with them and, you know, and that, and show them it before, and, and yeah, they all thought it was, that it was going to be good, so.
0: That's amazing, and for people that don't have support on that end, I mean, what, how would you have reacted contrary would you still have had the courage to put the video out if your family was like oh my gosh that's i can't believe that you're doing that and blah 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 because i would imagine some families might not be super supportive of something like that kind of what would what would go through your mind and what what would you say to somebody who might be thinking that some people might say gosh i i have a really supportive family too maybe i could try something like that and then there's other people that might say oh my god my family would freak out if I ever did something like that so how do you kind of look at those two dynamics and what advice would you give to somebody who maybe would have a different story to tell on how their family reacted
1: yeah see I would have definitely still put the video out like I feel like it is so important it's such an important message not just to young guys and uh, you know to any survivors out there it's such an important message to hear just to be able to Show that you can just speak about this, and it's okay to speak about about it openly. It doesn't have to be this really difficult <clears throat> this really difficult topic. We can, you know, we can make this an open conversation and not make it that awkward sort of taboo subject. So I would have still one hundred percent put it out, no matter what the sort of response was. That's just me. And I think if you're thinking like, "Oh, my family would react in this way," I think if you think it's going to help you, and you think it's going to help other people and you think it's important that your message is out there, then yeah, you should definitely just do it. And I know it's, it's going to be a difficult uh, thing to navigate, but for sure, definitely put it out there. And
0: did you hesitate at all before hitting publish? Were you nervous or what was going through your head as you were releasing it?
1: Yeah, I was definitely nervous. Um, I think the main thing is thinking about your friends, which is the same thing about being a guy, like, you know, your friends seeing this part of you and, i mean like i do martial arts and stuff so a lot of the people that i'm friends with are all like mma fighters or boxers and and they're like really tough like guys and you know don't really speak about the feelings and and then i thought you know that's what i'm battling against so i'm still gonna put it out there i'm not even gonna worry about that and the amount of messages i got from my friends from the clubs and stuff were just amazing there was like wow that was so powerful ryan and Um, like I'm always here for your support if you ever need anything and everything like that so it was like wow once you start opening that conversation I feel like it's going to be so rewarding for you and and the people around you as well you never know someone you might know might have gone through the same thing and you just don't know about that so
0: don't you think that sometimes we're our own worst enemy with how we assume the world's going to react if we say something but in reality we forget that Every other person, 100% of everybody else that we're around is sitting on something and saying, Oh my gosh, what would they think of me? And then the person that they're worried about is thinking that same thing, right? We all are scared of our most vulnerable times and and of our traumas because they scare us. But a lot of times, that fear that we have is actually what can unite us with other people, right? Because everybody can say, Oh my gosh, I've been through something too, and I've been scared. You make me feel like I'm not alone because nobody else is talking about it. Well, everybody else is thinking what you are. Everybody else is thinking that same, I can't talk about that because nobody else is, or I'm scared of what they're going to think, right? And those fears are usually met with a very resounding positivity when you're Mm -hmm. actually authentic and real about it and people can connect with you on a a level that they would with an actual friend versus... (laughs) oh, this is what that person had for breakfast. This is what that person's outfit of the day is. There's another puppy picture, right? There's another shoe picture, yeah. another purse, right? I think it's it's incredible. And I'm not surprised that people reacted that way to your story.
1: Yeah. And I just, I love the idea of that. Um, you know, people know me through that video. Like you see, even though it's so short and I don't say a lot, like you get to know a lot about me and i think it just sets a way of um it's okay to just be vulnerable like i said and 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 yeah just being open and and stuff it's it's such an important thing to me and like you say you never get to fully know someone by knowing what they've had for breakfast or anything like that and everyone's just putting on these masks on social media like now like everything's going great everything's going great and you know there's been so many instances of like celebrities who have put out like an encouraging post and then ended up taking their own life straight after so you don't really know what's going on behind behind that curtain of you know yeah just being false and stuff and and not speaking about what's actually going on it's such a toxic toxic place to be in
0: it is and i even look at now that i'm understanding trauma a little bit more and it's something i'm realizing is It's actually really powerful when you get people together who are willing to share the hard things in their life instead of the things that they're the most proud of. It brings me back to um, one of my favorite books is called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's about a guy that goes through a Nazi concentration camp, many camps, and survives when a a massive percentage of people he was in there with didn't. And moral of the story is now in hindsight, whenever he wrote the book – His message is, why are we only honoring our successes? Why don't we honor our struggles in the same way and and look at it in the face and say, if I'm to experience you, I'm going to experience the hell that I'm going to go through overcoming you the same way that I'm going to experience getting an award or getting a promotion or getting something that's considered successful, right? Getting that big check. We're so ashamed sometimes to share these things. And I think even on um, something that's really common with people that I don't even think they understand sometimes is toxic is looking at successful people. We watch their Instagrams and it's like, gosh, that's awesome. They have all this money. They have yachts. They have boats. They have houses. They have girls. They have money. They have anything that they want, right? But it all looks great and it's something to aspire to. But there's very few entrepreneurs who are willing to say, hey, I fucked up this time. And I'm going to show you. You're going to experience my fuck up. I'm going to do a video on it. Oh, and I Mm. fucked up again. I'm going to show you this, right? We're so focused on getting that million dollar check that we forget that in order to get that, you have to climb an entire mountain and go through so many years of obstacles to get to that top, Mm. to have that Instagram post that says, look at my million dollar check, right? Yeah. And you're really breaking a boundary with that because you're having that hard conversation and saying... Hey, like this isn't who I am. This is somebody that I was. That's not what I'm going to be in the future, and m- that story's done with. But hey, guess what? It's a part of my journey, and it's a part of who I am, and it's something that is really hard for me. So I'm going to share it with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it goes back to like what we were saying earlier. Like, I never want to be the sort of guy. But I'm very careful with everything that I post because I never want it to seem like, oh, poor me, you should feel sorry for me and and your problems. So you've just gone through a breakup. Oh, that's nothing. I got abused for eight years. Like, it's just, it's, I, I never want to put that message out there. What I want to put out is no matter the issue that you're going through, whether it's a breakup with your boyfriend when you're 12 years old or, you know, whether you've fell over and you've injured your leg and you can't, and you can't play football for three weeks and you know whatever that issue is it's okay to just express that it's okay to do that and and know that you're not doing it for attention or anything like that you're just doing it because it keeps your mind healthy it's so dangerous to to bottle things up and one of the most common like like illustrations for stress and and things is like a like a bucket our mind is like a bucket and it gets full and if we keep everything in there you know it's going to overfill and, and and the bucket might get damaged and you know, if we speak it out, we're letting out these issues bit by bit. That bucket just stays level and, and, and sometimes empty and and that's when you, you know when you feel at your best.
0: And we also need to make mistakes and trauma and things that happen to us that are out of our control. Those things are a part of everybody's life. And that's something we need to all get better at being okay with and saying, oh, that's just a part of my journey. It's not something I need to be ashamed of. Rather it's something I should be celebrating to some degree cuz even if I'm not happy that I went through it, I can do something with that and maybe help somebody else and prevent them from going through it like I did, yeah. right? I can now teach on a lesson that I've learned. I can now teach on many lessons that I've learned and it's not something to be ashamed of. It, it's it turns into wisdom over time, right?
1: Yeah, and that's a key like message that is what I'm aiming to do, you know, just spread on this um experience that I've had it's not to make people feel bad for me or anything like you say it's just passing on that experience to hopefully help someone or impact someone or or even someone that hasn't gone through it to just make them aware of this issue and you know that one person might make a huge change but if one day some politician sees my video and thinks actually that's a huge issue that we need to deal with and yeah it's just that's just what I'm aiming to do just just reach reach those people that need to hear it and, and the people that feel like they may not need to hear it or but could, you know, impact their lives and make them make some difference. So, yeah.
0: I want you to talk a little bit too about the UK. So, I'm in America and I, I think it's really cool that, you know, we're seven hours apart and we're having a conversation from across the world about something that... That we're relating to each other on and it's a hard topic but it's it's neat how these things really bring people together but i would love for you to touch on for people a lot of people that listen to my podcast are here in america could you talk a little bit about the uk and um where you guys are at with pedophiles and child abuse human trafficking those types of issues because i've talked to you about this a little bit but I think it's interesting how a lot of the stories I'm being introduced to as I go on my journey come from the UK. I'm hearing more from your country than I am from mine. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your culture and how these different crimes against children fit in and kind of where, where the UK is progressing to.
1: Yeah. So I recently actually did a video similar to like discussing this and, um, You know, it's in sort of two parts, and this is how I did it in the video, but we have to look at, you know, public opinion on paedophilia specifically, not just child abuse, but paedophilia, um, what are the attitudes on it, and, you know, publicly, you know, between, you know, um, civilians, I don't know how else to say it, but civilians, what are their thoughts on it, paedophiles in the UK everyone you know the monsters to every everyone thinks that if you look up you know have you seen like sting videos and things like that
0: yep
1: you can see the public attitude towards that is outrage people want to attack them people you know people want to get them locked up and in my opinion that is the correct um attitude to have on someone who has um committed a crime that has committed you know um, abuse or rape or anything like that um so i feel like in public attitude and civilian attitudes we you know we are sort of appropriately dealing with that um but it's more um legally and um like politically where i feel like we have the issues here and we've had in like we've had historically should i say so if i go back a little bit, I kind of want to say I think it was it might have been a lot earlier than this, but I feel like it was nineteen seventies, nineteen fifties. There was actually a group created called the Pedophile Information Exchange, and this group had their own like little newspaper and everything. They weren't like they weren't penalised for the sort of things that they said. Um, so the the aim of the group was to abolish the age of consent completely. So. They wanted it to be completely legal to have a relationship with the child, sexual relationship. Um, how
0: long ago was so this w- again?
1: So I think this was nineteen seventies or fifties. Okay, wow. Um, yeah, so it's not that long ago. Like it's not.
0: But that you know, shows like- the like how long this has been a conversation that people have been trying to normalize. This it's two thousand twenty. That's yeah. almost fifty years later, and there's still some states that I see here, even in America that try to do those types of things like this isn't new
1: yeah and it's also like i've seen a documentary called virtuous pedophiles i don't know if you've seen that no it's very short that's this it's about this guy and he's trying to make non-offending pedophiles um speak openly and i think that um if they're non offending you know i feel like you need to get psychological help and i think that you know you don't deserve to be punished for this get psychological help as long as you don't act on this but sending that message out there in the public saying it's okay to be a pedophile is very very dangerous because someone out there will use that to justify their abusive actions if someone is there you know and they've been abusing their kids to come and find this video that'll make them feel like what they're doing is accepted and their mind is very twisted so even if you're saying things like if you act on it it's wrong if you act on it it's wrong it won't matter to them because they've been told it's wrong the whole life but if they get a hint of acceptance, it's very, in my opinion, it is very, very dangerous. And behind closed doors, if you feel like you are having these thoughts, you may be a pedophile. Go and get psychological help. But we don't need to be expressing things in the media and and thing, putting things out there where we say it's okay to be a, be a pedophile, because that is so dangerous, in my opinion. And I'd recommend anyone go and watch the sort of Virtuous... I think it's called the Virtuous Paedophiles on YouTube. Um, yeah. So when we, when we look sort of at the paedophile information exchange, the people involved with this were actually friends with people in parliament back then, and, um, which is really shocking. And um, eventually it sort of faded out. And, but there were actually a recent interview with their leader... Uh, i can't remember his name and he's like speaking so openly about how he thinks that children should be able to have sex with um with adults and it's it's i wouldn't recommend watching it if it's something that'll trigger you but it's just it'll give you an insight into the attitudes higher up on this topic
0: does this organization Um, still exist uh, what was that sorry does this organization still exist you said or it's just people from it are still talking about it
1: yeah it doesn't exist anymore um But people, I think it was recently when the. I feel like the interview was done quite recently. So, um, yeah, it'll show you sort of how their attitudes haven't been skewed.
0: Are you noticing that that's still trending out there? Is that something that they're still trying to pass? Or where has the UK come since then? Has it improved policies? Are there still things that you guys need to work on? Where is it at now in comparison to the 70s?
1: Yeah, I feel like there's so much improvement that needs to be done. Like the sentences that these that offenders are getting is nowhere near high enough. Like it's it's quite funny because a lot of rappers in the UK, like in Grime and stuff, they like to speak about you know political things, and um, in one of the songs, they're saying like um there's people in gangs and stuff getting longer t- who haven't committed a crime yet but they're just in the gang getting longer sentences than people who have raped children that's basically what they're saying in the line and you know pete everyone can see it like and th- there's also another line sorry i'm using these but this is just 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 a good way to express you know public opinion yeah um and it, it one of them is um these guys have got these laws tailor made because um, they uh, might touch a kid but won't ever touch a razor blade. So everyone's opinion is that everyone in Parliament uh, pedophiles and stuff. And I won't go too much into the conspiracies behind all that. But if you more watch than welcome to
0: no censorship <laughs> on here.
1: <laughs> yeah, but pedophiles in Parliament. If you guys um, you know aren't phased by um, conspiracy theories and stuff like that, go and watch that because. It is mind blowing the evidence they have on that and paedophiles in Parliament.
0: Where can people (laughs) watch that?
1: That's on YouTube. The um, woman who created it, I think she's called Sonia Paulson. So, yeah. It's it's really interesting and I'd recommend you you watching it. It talks about the Jimmy Savile situation, how he was linked to the Royals and um, to. uh, loads of people there was actually a politician and i can't remember his name sorry i'm not great at- <laughs> it's very in this i should have um brought some notes but um there was this politician and he was trying to expose um all the paedophiles and there was a list that he left um of all these people and it was never really like brought to the attention of the public but yeah i'll let you watch the documentary and and it'll speak about all that and yeah it's just Legally and politically, and also an interview done by Boris Johnson, which I spoke about in my recent video, how he speaks, he, he explains um, historic abuses, a waste um, investigations into historic abuse. He describes it as a waste of uh, money and a waste of resources. And so that just shows our own prime minister's opinion on on uh, historic abuse.
0: Gosh, but isn't that powerful that there's there's people talking about how this goes all the way up in Parliament. And then there's stories like yours that happen right at home. And I think you said this earlier that, I mean, pedophilia and child abuse, child trafficking, there's no specific traits or identity that a person has that can be an abuser. It's all different spectrums. And even as you said, even though they're primarily men that we end up finding are involved on the perpetrator side... There's also women, and there can be men that are really young that have these um, tormenting – I mean, I was reading the story yesterday that just – it crushed me because this kid was so young. So there was a kid that was like 14, and he was using – I think it was Call of Duty or some type of video game that you can stream with other people – he groomed another kid that was younger than him for about six months over online, and, and his parents just thought he was playing with a kid, and, and it was a kid that he was playing with. Then the kid goes and meets him in person. His friends are, his parents are oh, excited I I that he's actually yeah, yeah. going to go meet another friend, and this kid kills him.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, right. I that case,
0: and even though that wasn't necessarily like pedophilia, it still shows that there's no age for a groomer or for an abuser. It comes in all different forms, fashions, genders, ages, and it's yep. across the world. This is everywhere. And it can it can happen in children that can have these dysfunctions or have mental issues that parents and, and other kids aren't trained to look for. How you said, we're, we're not educated and there's not a lot of research out that talks about the psychology of these things and what to look for. Yeah. But these can also think. be like older men right older women and it's everywhere in between
1: yeah and it's really difficult to try and think of a way to educate someone to notice this because it's so hidden but i think the things that we can do we should do to the best of our abilities like educating children what are the safe zones on your body uh what are um attributes of an unhealthy relationship you know those two two key things are the most important in my opinion you know if a child can notice you know um simply like, oh, this shouldn't be, ha- this sh- I shouldn't be touched here in this way. Um, then, then yeah, um, it can fix, it can make them come out a lot earlier, you know. I feel like if I would have known it was wrong, no matter what he would have told me, I would have spoke about this And and, yeah.
0: Do you think, too, <laughs> think, having permission from a parent that says, if any of this ever happens to you, please come to me? Don't you yeah. feel like a lot of kids are scared to actually go talk to somebody because they wonder, oh my gosh, what are they going to think? Don't you think if, yeah. if parents took more initiative to you and just said, hey, I'm always going to believe you, please come talk to me if this ever happens. Don't you think something yeah, like course. that also could really empower kids?
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of parents are scared about educating the children in that way. But I think it was Jeremy Indica who said, um, if you think that teaching your children about child sexual abuse will ruin their innocence imagine what would happen if an abuser got there first
0: wow holy crap that's powerful
1: yeah yeah um so you just if you are a parent out there and you're wondering how to there's so many different resources out there as well but if you're wondering how to sort of navigate that and you're worried about that um just think of it in in that way it's such an awkward thing to speak about i'm sure but yeah it's just so important
0: it is and it's kind of how i was saying earlier there's adults that still go through these instances with abusers because they they weren't taught as a child they weren't taught as a teenager they weren't taught in their 20s or 30s and they still don't have that ability to connect and understand an abusive situation whenever they're faced with it right
1: yeah that's so true
0: and so yeah. you've created this amazing video. It's being spread. I have no doubt that it's going to continue to keep being spread and that you're going to inspire so many people with it. But what's what are you doing right now as far as helping to push this? Like, what are you working on and what's coming up for you?
1: Yeah, so I'm currently just working on, you know, continuing to put content out there just around this topic and trying to open up conversations, um, a big piece of work that I'm working on is a documentary um, where it's going to look into how uh, child sexual abuse is being uh, dealt with in society. Are people dealing with it well? Is there enough, uh, you know, resources and money being put into uh, helping survivors? So that's one of the big projects I'm working on. And also just fundraising, stuff like that. So I'm just going to continue to just fight to, you know, keep these conversations open and educate children and do whatever I can as and, a survivor. So,
0: And how does your being a male affect how you're going to move forward with this process? Are you going to specifically try to target men with your messages or kind of what is your approach on that too? Because I know that you feel very strongly too about being a male and empowering others to do the same.
1: Yeah, so targeting, you know, young guys and just, um, you know, eventually I'd love to do talks in schools and stuff like that, you know, aimed at young guys, but also anyone who's going through this just. Um, but young guys specifically, because there's so much, like I said earlier, in, you know, friends groups where people joke about pedophilia and joke about stuff like that, and it, and it really does make someone going through that feel very embarrassed about what's happened to them. And I just want to that mes- share that message of, no, you're strong for getting through that and you're strong to even be here. Statistically, you're meant to be homeless or in a jail or, you know, you're strong for even still being here. So it's okay to speak about it. And yeah, just just target them young guys and, and also every survivor, so.
0: One in six or one in eight, that's crazy. And I think earlier I said 20, I meant 24, six out of 24. But that is just, it's incredible. And I think that those statistics too, people being aware of, I think we all need to do better with kind of having empathy with each other and not assuming that just because things look picture-perfect on the outside that that means that they were.
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah.
0: And so you're working on a documentary. You're doing all this content. Um, Is there anything that we can do or people listening to support you?
1: (sighs) Yeah so just following the page and, and sharing the posts that you, that you like or that uh, are inspiring to you is just a great way to help um uh, the podcast um I have yeah, a podcast Yeah, talk about
0: your podcast and even get to that.
1: Yeah, yeah, so you have a podcast, podcast too. Yeah. Um I I usually do visual but I'm going just audio Um. I just think it's easier to edit and stuff and the way I like to edit I get to Thinking about it. So it's going audio only. um, And I like to share motivational stories on there.
0: What's it called so so people can go find it?
1: Yeah, so it's called the Edge of the Bed Podcast. And my Instagram is just The Edge of the Bed. Um, What does that mean? Actually, yeah, everyone asked me that. I was about to say that. (laughs) Um, So The Edge of the Bed is because I named it that is because a lot of the abuse that I faced was on the uh, edge of the bed. So it's kind of like the, the, the space there was kind of like a place where I'd dissociate and I'd go to all these happy places and, and, you know, uh, be away from the abuse and stuff. And yeah, it's just such an important part of my story because I feel like that's what helped me get through it. Just dissociating from the moment. So that's why it's called the edge of the bed.
0: Oh, wow. That's really powerful. I didn't even know that. And so yeah, that's yeah. your Instagram. And then what's the, what is your podcast? What type of guests do you have on your podcast?
1: So it is focused around um, survivors of child sexual abuse, but I also welcome anyone who has a s- motivational story. We've had Forrest Lang who was uh, who has a crazy story. Um, he was abused as a child and and um, accidentally shot his best friend and stuff, and overcame that. And you know he has a he has a great story. Um, Every re- like sort of bringing sort of rebuilding, coming back and. Yeah, so I welcome anyone with a motivational story, um, and yeah, so if you like positivity, motivation, and stuff like that, then come and take a listen.
0: Everybody, please go follow the Edge of the Bed podcast. You can find it on the same platform as all these. Do you have YouTube or anything?
1: Yeah, I'm on. It's on every. Yeah, I'm on YouTube, Spotify, um, and I think all the podcasting, all the podcasting pages and stuff.
0: Okay, and where can people – you mentioned Instagram as Edge of the Bed. Are there other platforms other than podcasting and Instagram that people can connect with you? Uh,
1: on the fa- I just have a Facebook page, um, but I'm more active on the Instagram, the Edge of the Bed. I post most of my stuff to that. So I'd say um, Instagram is the sort of main place where I post stuff.
0: I'm going to link all of this below, you guys. So please scroll in the, in the show notes and click on all these links because you're going to really – Please go follow his story. I wish I could play it on here for you guys. That video that I was telling you, it's it made me cry and it kind of shocked me at the same time because it was so real and raw and it was so different than your typical content that you see on social media. And I think we need to emphasize more people like Ryan being a voice instead of just your typical influencer that you see them perfect 100% of the time and it's almost this stigma of you're not allowed to mess up or you're not allowed to not show up as your 100% perfect self and I think the more we do that, the more we set aside our differences everybody can come together and agree that child abuse is bad in any type of way that crimes against children that doesn't hold a political agenda it doesn't hold a a race war there's no division that can happen when we all come together for something that we all care about and i think so much of what's put out there is meant to divide us or make us feel inferior when the very thing that we're the most scared of our our worst traumas and our hardest moments in our life those are actually the things that are going to bring us all back together, right? And you've seen it yourself. Yeah. You said that has to be so healing, knowing that that you put this piece of content out that was so painful for you to experience and other people are saying, oh my gosh, I feel like you're speaking my experience. I feel like you're helping me heal. I feel like you're giving me courage. I feel like you're inspiring me. Like, yeah, we need to have more of those conversations and I think – Ryan, you're just, you're such a bright shining star and I can't wait to see what you continue doing because I know that your courage is going to give millions of others courage. And I really just can't thank you enough for coming on here and hanging out with me today because it takes not just courage to do what you did, but to keep reliving what you went through every time you tell your story. Your bravery, I commend and your courage. And going back to earlier when you said people assume that survivors are weak, man, survivors are the strongest fucking people in the world. Like you guys have overcome things that would break most people and you're sitting here smiling because of it. And I've noticed that with every single survivor that I've interviewed, they've all been through things that most people can't even wrap their mind around happening to another human. And they're sitting here today reliving and telling their story so you can take that information and hopefully go share it with somebody else and empower them. To understand, so maybe we can help other children from not going through this, and help other people recognize the signs, and to have empathy for people. So, just thank yeah, you so thank much you. for coming yeah. on here today.
1: No, thank you. It's been it's been great. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it.
0: Is there anything else that you want to share, or anything else that you want people to know, or anywhere else people can find you before we log off of here?
1: Um, just to take everything you know that I've said, even if you aren't a survivor, you know. Um, anything that I've said, don't just think it's aimed at um, survivors or people who have been through extreme trauma, you know, um, if you're just going through your day to day life and, and struggling, um, you know, I've, I've got a lot of stories on my page where, you know, it's focused around people who have, um, survived cancer and, and, you know, other things like that. So I'm not just aiming everything I say towards survivors and don't feel like your problems are inferior and, if you're struggling and you feel like your problems are inferior, um, yeah, don't feel like that.
0: I love that. And I love just how much hope that your message and your story gives to everybody. So you guys, please go follow Ryan. He is an influencer that we need to really lift up. We need to believe survivors. We need to listen to survivors. And we really need to tell our stories because they've been shoved into silence for so much of their life, whether it was – by their abuser or even by social media, which likes to censor. So go connect with Ryan. He's absolutely amazing. And you guys, thank you so much for tuning in today and we will see you next time. Bye, Ryan. Bye, everybody. Bye.